leaving an even bigger tear than before. And then verse 22, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. Heavenly Father, as we take the next few minutes together to unpack your word, we are grateful that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So God, I pray that you would just speak to us this morning as your word is spoken by me. I pray that you would challenge us, Holy Spirit, to apply this word to us. Lord, I pray this morning that you would help me to speak not a single word of my own, but only that which comes directly from you. Lord, help me to speak your word with boldness, with clarity, with simplicity, And God, help me to decrease and help you to increase and be the focus of our time together today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Last couple of weeks as we've been working through Mark's gospel, really the last two lessons that I've preached on in Mark chapter 2, we have seen that there have been several questions that have been posed by the crowd. They're kind of sitting back watching this man, Jesus, who's come onto the scene, trying to figure out what is he about? What is he interested in? What is he doing? Who is this man that that has come onto the scene suddenly and is really making quite the effect among the crowds? We saw a couple of weeks ago when Jesus was teaching in a home, there was a man that was let down through a roof who was paralyzed by his friends And when he was let down before Jesus, Jesus immediately responded and said to the man, your sins are forgiven, and it caused this outrage among those who were present. Who is this man? Who is this man, Jesus, that he has such authority to even forgive sins? We saw even two weeks ago that that Jesus' ministry and his calling of Levi a tax collector, as the scripture says, the scum of the earth. And then he was fellowshipping and eating dinner with Levi in his home when with other tax collectors, it caused a stir among this same crowd. And they questioned. They questioned the actions of Jesus. Who is this man that that he would fellowship with, that he would eat dinner with such people? Today, though, in our text, we're going to see that there is actually another question that is posed by the crowd. But this time, it's not about the actions of Jesus, but it's about the actions of his disciples, of his followers. We saw in Mark chapter 2, verse 18, the second half, here is the question that the crowd poses to Jesus. They say, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? Now, what we can learn from this this question, this inquiry, is certainly it tells us something about John's disciples as well as the Pharisees. We can learn from this question that, first of all, that many of them, John's disciples and the Pharisees, they would often gauge spirituality solely based on external practices and not so much the devotion of one's heart. Their concern was what they were doing externally, not so much what was happening internally with their hearts. That's why they were able to say, why why aren't your fairs or why aren't your disciples fasting like we do? Look at us, look at what we do. Their concern had more to do with the external, not so much the devotion of one's heart. We also can learn from this question that 
the disciples of John and the Pharisees very likely saw themselves as more spiritual than Jesus' disciples. You can hear it kind of underneath the surface of that question. Why, why don't your disciples fast like we do? I mean, we're super spiritual. We, we have our act together. Why don't they model what we do? So you can hear in their question, there was this sense that they viewed themselves as being more spiritual than the disciples of Jesus because of the external practices that they engaged in. We also can learn from this inquiry, this question, that they tried to impose their convictions and even their practices on others. Now, we can be quick to judge and quick to see that, man, these, these people, they were pompous in their spirituality. They, man, they tried to impose all of their convictions and practices on others. But I would really ask us this question, are we any different than those that ask this question, why, why don't they fast like we do? Why aren't they more spiritual like we are? Why aren't they engaging in practices spiritual practices like we do. I think if we really dig a little bit deeper, if we search our hearts, there is, even if we don't say it out, out loud, there is still this sense that, that we do or we say some of the very same things. Now, maybe we aren't guilty of that in here, and I'm not, I'm not um, um, accusing anyone in this room of anything, but I know there have probably been times where we've been in a worship service or a corporate worship setting, and we start looking around, and we start saying things like, this person, they must not be as spiritual as I am because their hands aren't raised, and my hands are, my hands are raised higher than this person, or man, they're just sitting there quietly. I must be more spiritual than they are, or Maybe we say things, and again, it may just be internal conversations. How many of you have conversations with yourself? Okay, all right, I'm not the only one. Okay, good. I'm glad to know I'm not crazy, all right? We have these internal conversations with our, well, you might be a little crazy, all right. Um, thank you, thank you. Uh, we have these internal conversations with ourselves and say things, man, I, and I serve at every church-sponsored uh, event, or I've, I show up at this event and that event. I never see these people. I must be more spiritual, more in tune with where God wants me to be. And again, it's, we miss the whole point. It, we, we're gauging spirituality based on external practices, and we're missing the most important thing, and that is the devotion of one's heart. Notes, I do want you to note this. Nowhere in this text, this is not a, a message about fasting because nowhere in this text or even in this question or even in Jesus' response here in Mark 2 do we see a mandate to fast, nor do we see a place where he strictly forbids it. That is not the point here. There are other places in Scripture, Matthew chapter uh, um, five or chapter six uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, where, where Jesus will talk about fasting, where he will talk about when you give and when you pray and when you fast. But here in this particular text, the point has nothing really to do about fasting. There's something much deeper, something much more important. So I just want you to know this morning, I'm not going to really address the topic of fasting specifically, because that is not the point that Jesus is trying to make. He is not mandating it, nor is he forbidding it here. Uh, later on, he will teach on it. The concern of the crowd really prompted Jesus here in this text to defend his disciples and to really set a precedent for living as people of this new and greater kingdom. I'm going to take us all the way back again to Mark chapter 1, 
Mark chapter 1 and in verse 15 where, where we see that Jesus is the one who ushers in this new kingdom. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. It is near and he calls the people to repent of their sins and to believe the good news. So really everything after Mark chapter 1 verse 15, he is really setting up for us what it looks like for us to live as citizens of this new kingdom. And so here we're going to see what the precedent is for disciples, for followers of Jesus Christ. How many want to live by the standards of God's kingdom and not the standards of the kingdom of this world? And I am here to tell you this morning, I don't think any of you really isn't a newsflash, but, but the standards of God's kingdom look a whole lot different than what the standards of the kingdom of this world look like. And I, as a follower of Jesus, as a devoted, committed follower of Jesus Christ, I want to live by the standards of God's kingdom. Remember, his kingdom cannot be shaken. I don't want to give myself to, to living as, uh, by the standards of this world because they are not even in comparison to the standards of God's kingdom. So what are the precedents for disciples or followers of Jesus Christ? Three things I want to share with you real briefly this morning right out of this text. Number one, disciples of Jesus. This might be my favorite one. Disciples of Jesus are clearly characterized by a life of joy and celebration. Now, let me, let me unpack this for you. I think we'll, we'll grasp this when we start to look a little bit deeper at the text. Look at Mark chapter 2. It'll be up on the screen, verses 19 and 20. Jesus replied to that question, why, do your, why don't your disciples fast like we do? Here is Jesus' response. He said, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them, but someday the groom will be taken away from them. And then Jesus says they will fast. A couple things I want to share with you this morning. Number one, here Jesus assumes the kingdom of God, which was inaugurated again by his kingdom or by his coming in chapter 1, verse 15. He is assuming that this kingdom of God that he inaugurated is not a funeral wake, but it is a wedding party, a wedding celebration. And I think we all know there is a difference between a wedding party and a funeral service. Jesus' disciples here in this text, they are viewed as wedding guests. While Jesus is understood here in the text to be the groom, I mean, he says to them, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? And so the, the crowd, those present, his disciples are viewed as the wedding guests at this party, and Jesus is viewed here as the groom. Now, we all know that the atmosphere, I think we all know the atmosphere of a wedding party is that of joy and celebration. I hope so. I hope, I hope at any wedding, I, I'm just saying, I hope... I hope any wedding that you have ever, ever been to, I am really hopeful that it was full of joy and celebration and not mourning and sadness. If so, I think counseling is needed, all right? <laughs> but we know that typically speaking, the atmosphere of a wedding party is that of joy and celebration. That's, that's why there is this, this sense of happiness and joy, this sense of, of a union between a man and a woman coming together. There is dancing. There is cake. How many love cake? I mean, that to me, that brings joy to my heart. Cake, cupcakes, food, all right? So, so there is this sense of joy and celebration, and that is the atmosphere, atmosphere that we think of when we think of a wedding party. But the presence of fasting, that would have created this sense of, of mourning and sadness, and we see that even throughout Scripture. Jesus' point here in Mark chapter 2, I want you to understand his point and then how that applies to us. 
Jesus' point to those who pose this question regarding the lack of fasting by his disciples is this, that in the presence of the groom, in the presence of Jesus, it is a time to be joyful and it is a time to celebrate. Fasting characterized by mourning and sadness would be inappropriate in the presence of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, our Savior, the one who has rescued us and set us free. Jesus does make a point. He says there will be a time for fasting. There will be a season for, for mourning and sadness. And we see that even in the passion of Jesus when he goes to the cross and when he dies upon that cross, there is that season for when mourning and sadness is appropriate. But even then, it would be temporary. The resurrection will bring forth joy among God's people. That is the point that Jesus is trying to make. When they pose this question, he is trying to, to make certain they understand that in, that in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of the King and the Savior, it is a time to celebrate. It is a time to be joyful among the presence of the King. So what are the implications for a follower of Jesus? Number one, Christians should be the most joyful people in the world. I can't stress that enough, folks. That is very, very important. And I'm not saying that, that we won't have seasons of sadness, that we won't have seasons of grief or mourning. Those are, those are all a part of what we will experience. But as Christians who, who understand that our citizenship, ultimately our citizenship is not here on earth, but we are citizens of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, Christians should be the most joyful people in the world. We have good news we have good news that yes, there is grieving. Yes, there is mourning. Yes, there is sadness. But this is not the end. This is not all there is. We have this hope that there is one day going to be a day when we will be in God's presence, where we will worship him around the throne. So why should Christians be the most joyful people in the world? Let me point you to a few places in scripture. First of all, we should be joyful because we know that our present sufferings they will not compare to the glory that will be revealed to us later. How many are thankful that our present sufferings will not even compare to the glory that will be revealed to us later? Look at what Paul says in Romans 8. Yet what we suffer now is nothing, he says, compared to the glory he will reveal to us later for all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. And then he says in Philippians chapter three, verse eight, yes, everything else, Paul says, is worthless compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, Paul says, I have discarded everything else and I've counted it all as garbage so that I could, what, gain Christ. We should be the most joyful people because we know that our present sufferings will not even compare to the future glory that we will receive one day as adopted sons and daughters of the king. Number two, one day all of creation will no longer be subject to death and decay. Yes, that is part of our present reality. Now this goes back to, to when I talked about the, the aspect of the kingdom. There is an already aspect of God's kingdom, but there is a not yet aspect, a, a part that is not fully realized yet. And this is part of that. In Romans 8, verse 20 and 21, Paul says, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, the creation 
looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from what? From death and decay. That should bring us joy. That, that should cause us to celebrate knowing again that this is temporary. That one day we'll, we will be in the presence of the king where death and decay will no longer be. Thirdly, the hope we should be joyful because the hope of a future bodily resurrection and a full adoption into God's family will become part of our reality. Um, some of us are probably very excited about a bodily resurrection one day. That is, that is part, of, part of what Scripture teaches. Look in Romans 8.23. Again, Paul says, And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste or as a down payment of that future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies as he has promised us. And we should be the most joyful people on this planet. Why? Because this home that we are in now here on earth, it's temporary. It's not permanent. It's temporary. Peter will talk about us being uh, foreigners who are just passing through. Paul talks about how our citizenship resides ultimately in heaven. So this here on earth, it is temporary. We are still awaiting a day when we will be able to spend eternity with our King and our Savior in heaven. I think Paul and Silas, if there's any, any picture of joy and celebration of a follower of Jesus Christ that comes from Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas on a missionary journey, they get put in prison. If there's anybody that had a right to be discouraged, depressed, and, and sad, and mourning, it was Paul and Silas. They're in a prison. They're, they're chained to guards. Uh, it's dark. It, it, there's nothing fun about their experience, nothing joyful about their circumstances. But Paul and Silas recognize that even though their present circumstances are discouraging, they also have this hope that one day this will no longer be and that they will be in the presence of the king, which allows them allows them to respond in a joyful and celebratory manner. What do they do? What do Paul and Silas do while in prison, chained to guards? It's late at night. It's dark. Um, what do they do? They start singing songs. They start praying. They start celebrating. They have this joyful mentality, even in the midst of some very difficult and discouraging circumstances. That is an example we should certainly follow. We should be some of the most joyful people on this earth. Constant doom and gloom mentality is not attractive at all to a world that is constantly being bombarded with bad news. Folks, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, the last thing they need to see are more Christians who have this constant doom and gloom mentality because they can turn on the news station, they can go to social media, and they can see bad news upon bad news. Folks, we need to, we need to show them something that's a little bit more attractive. We need to be joyful, not joyful about the circumstances that are taking place, but joyful that we are a part of a greater kingdom. Joyful that we know that even in the midst of this chaos, God is still working and moving, and so they need to see on our faces. They need to see when they're among our presence that there is joy and celebration because we are a part of a greater kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That mentality is not at all attractive to this world. We need to present ourselves in a way where people long to have what we have. The corporate worship gathering 
when we gather together on Sunday morning, when we sit in these chairs or when we sit in the chairs in our future building, when we come together to sing and to pray and to give and to spend time in God's word, the corporate worship gathering, it should be a joyful occasion for God's people. Why? Because we are, when we come together, we are in the presence of the resurrected Lord. He is among us. And so that, that's worth joy. That's worth celebration. And so, yes, certainly, I'm guessing some of you probably came in this morning and there were circumstances of our mourning that may call for mourning, that may call for sadness, that may call for discouragement and even frustration. Maybe if you had to get kids ready this morning, things just didn't go away, go your way, and maybe it took a little bit longer than normal, or hopefully no one got a speeding ticket on their way in, but there are certain things that happen. I didn't, just so you know, but there are certain things that happen that, that can certainly call for us to be discouraged and frustrated. But folks, when we come together, and my prayer, that's, that's why we begin um, with a call to worship when Danny or Frank, when they come up here and they have a stand and they open up the pages of Scripture and they read from Scripture and they pray, they don't do that just as, as a routine. We do that to really set the atmosphere. We are coming into the presence of our resurrected Lord and King. This is a time to celebrate, to be joyful. So we do that to prepare our hearts so that even if the circumstances this morning were a little bit rough, we can kind of still ourselves in the presence of God and know that we are here among the king. We cannot allow those circumstances to steal our joy and miss an opportunity for us to meet with Christ. When we come together on Sunday mornings, we come here to celebrate the resurrected Lord. We come here to meet with him. We come here to hear from him, to experience him so that our lives will be changed and transformed. But folks, if we come in here and we, we allow the circumstances that's going on out there to affect what's taking place in here, it may cause us to miss an opportunity to fellowship with Christ. Look at these last two, you, last two points to you quickly and we'll be done this morning. Going back to the text then, so what is the precedent that Jesus is setting? First of all, first precedent was just simply the disciples of Jesus should clearly be characterized by a life of joy and celebration. But number two, disciples of Jesus seek to honor God, not impress others with their spirituality. That's what disciples, followers of Jesus Christ should look like. Our desire should not to be impre to impress others, to impress the person on our left or on our right, to, to, to have this mentality of I'm more spiritual than they are because I lift my hands and they don't. It should not to be to impress somebody else, but instead to honor the king. Look at the text in chapter two, verse 18. Once when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus again. They asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? For the Pharisees and John's disciples, the objective was obtaining super spiritual status that they measured by their external and ascetic practices. For them, it was a competition mindset. We do this more. We do this better. We are more engaged spiritually. We fast more. We pray more. We give more. Therefore, we must be more spiritual. Therefore, we must love God more. Folks, this was the problem of the Corinthian church. If you read, if you read uh, uh, the book of uh, the letter to uh, the Corinthian church, the first, uh, first Corinthians, it was, it's not a church that we want to model ourselves after. They were messed up. They were screwed up. They, they had this same mentality. It was all about outdoing the other person spiritually. And it was all about impressing someone else, impressing brothers and sisters in Christ instead of honoring God. 
Spiritual practices are not being rejected by Jesus here. I want you to hear that. He's not telling them not to fast or not to pray or not to give. That is not the point. Jesus expects his followers to engage in these disciplines. When we read in Matthew chapter 5 and 6, when you pray, do this. When you give, do it this way. When you fast, do it this way. He does expect us to engage in those practices. But many engage in these practices for the wrong reasons, the wrong motivation. We don't fast, we don't give, we don't pray to to try to impress God, try to sway him to, to do what we want to have done. That's not why we give, why we pray, or why we fast. If that's the reason, that's the wrong motivation. It's not about self-exaltation. It's not about, look at me. Look at how spiritual I am because I've not eaten food in seven days and, and, and they're eating food every single day. It has nothing to do. That is the wrong motivation. This is what Jesus will reject. He rejects wrong motives. Disciples of Jesus are to live by this standard then. This should be really the, the statement that we live by everything I do is for the glory of God. Maybe that's something if, if, if you need to remember a statement or, or maybe you write it down in your car, maybe you write it down at work, post it somewhere, you can see it often on the refrigerator or something. Everything I do is for the glory of God. Every time I go into my place of employment, everything I do is for the glory of God. Every time I walk into this grocery store, everything I do is for the glory of God. Every time I walk into this event or into this service or to this atmosphere, everything that I do needs to be done not to impress somebody else, but it needs to be done for the glory of God. And folks, that's something, and I know we're human. I know there are times where the flesh gets the better of us, um, and, and that's fine, but we need to repent. We need to move on and remember that we, everything that we do, it doesn't matter how insig insignificant it may seem. Every time I serve on Sunday morning, every time I work with kids, every time I pass the offering bag, every time that I greet somebody, every time I work in the sound booth, every time that I come into this place, I come here not to impress others. I come here for the glory of of God. That needs to be our mentalities. That is the precedent that Jesus is setting for these disciples. They're asking the question, why aren't they fasting like we do? And Jesus is responding to them. It's not about impressing other people. It's not about super spiritual status. What well, Jesus is saying, everything that we do needs to be done to bring glory to God and God alone. Finally, number three, disciples of Jesus then need to live by the standards and principles of this new kingdom. Look at the rest of the text, Mark 2, verses 21 to 22. Besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. Now, these are two metaphors that Jesus uses that they would have understood very clearly, especially in their context. Here Jesus draws on two separate metaphors really to emphasize the significance of the new kingdom that has been ushered in by Jesus himself. He's making this that you, you can't patch old clothing with a new cloth. Why? Because when it is washed, the new cloth patched onto that old clothing would shrink tearing the old garment. It's incompatible. The new is incompatible with the old. Same for the wineskins. Old wineskins, they are already stretched to their limits. They are inflexible. So if you go and you add new wine to these old wineskins that have already been stretched to their limits, it's going to cause the old skins to immediately burst. 
you lose the old wine and you lose the new. They are incompatible. So what is Jesus' point? His point is this, the new that Jesus brings in, that he ushers in the kingdom of God, it is incompatible with the old. Jesus did not come to simply just patch up the old system. He is not looking to simply reform the old, but instead to transform it. The old system, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, remember it exemplified the condemnation of, of an exclusion of sinners. They were all about, no, they're tax collectors, they're the scum of the earth, they can't fellowship with us, get them away. Or the leper, he's unclean, we need to keep him outside of our camp, we can't touch him, we can't fellowship with him because he's deemed unclean. That was the, that was the old system, but what are the principles of the new kingdom that the disciples then are to follow? Number one, the old way was to exclude sinners, but the new welcomes them. Two weeks ago, the phrase that I used was we need to contaminate them with the grace of God. We don't need to be so concerned about the leper contaminating us. We need to be more concerned about making sure that we are contaminating them with God's incredible grace. Number two, the old was about external practices, but the new that Jesus ushers in, it's about a transformed heart. Folks, that's what Jesus is longing for. He wants hearts that are transformed, hearts that are devoted to him. He, he's, not, he's not looking for people who can outdo somebody else spiritually. He, he's not looking for us to try to, try to impress our neighbors in, in a worship service by, by raising our, our hands higher. I, I pray and hope that you do or whatever um, demonstration of worship is, is appropriate, I pray, and those are fine, but it's not about impressing the person to your right or to your left. It's about a heart that is transformed and devoted to the one who has set us free, the one who has changed us, the one who has transformed us. The old was about external practices. The new is about a transformed heart. The worship team wants to come this morning. Pretty simple. I think when we first read that text, especially get caught up in those metaphors trying to figure out what, what is Jesus even talking about? Old patches, old clothing, new patches, old clothing, old wineskins, new wine. What, what, what point is Jesus trying to make? And what, what about this question of, of disciples not fasting and other disciples that are? What are we to make of that? There's three things as we close this morning. I want you to see that I think we need to consider as a church. Number one, as a church, we cannot simply measure one's spirituality based on their external practices. But instead, we need to look for the fruit of a transformed heart. Now, I'll be the first to tell you this morning that there's no one in here that truly knows the motive of somebody else's heart. God knows, but there is certainly fruit that should come forth from a heart that has been transformed by Jesus. I think that's why um, James will say faith without works is dead. Now we know that we are saved by grace and through faith alone, not of works. Works don't save us. But a heart that has been transformed by Jesus, a heart that is devoted to Jesus Christ fully and completely, a transformed heart should certainly produce spiritual fruits.
That's what God is looking for. That's what we should be looking for. Number two, as believers, this is something that we need to do individually. As believers, we need to make certain that we do a self-check to make sure that my motives are in check and my sole aim is to honor God and not exalt self. I would encourage us to, whether you do it every single morning, whether you do it when you come together for worship, whether you, you know, have a, an alarm go off on your phone that just says self-check, whatever it is, I would encourage us. This is something as believers we need to make certain that we do because I want to make certain that I'm living my life in such a way that I am bringing glory to God, honoring Him, not trying to impress my neighbor to the left or to the right. I mean, David Praise prayer, search me, O God. Know my heart. See if there is any wicked way in me. It's a prayer that David prays. It's a prayer that we should pray. God, search my heart. See if my motives are out of whack. Am I trying to impress my neighbor? Am I trying to impress the person to my left or to my right? Or am I trying to bring glory and honor to you? And if the motives are out of whack... Allow the Holy Spirit to realign those motives to make certain that they are pure and holy. Finally, number three, as believers, our lives should exude with joyful praise and celebration because we are children of the King and we are carriers of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why, folks, we should be the most joyful people on this planet because we are carriers. We are ambassadors of the King, carriers of the gospel, and we are children of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Would you stand?